0: Let's um, turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Paul's going to give Timothy instructions on how church services are to be held uh, in regards to prayer and to the word, and how our behavior should be expressed in regards to those two things. Remember that these aren't Paul's words. They're the thoughts of God given to Paul um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is how God wants our gathering together for prayer and worship to be worked out. The heart of this chapter is that we would take seriously the ministry of prayer for the world and taking the gospel to the world, reflecting God's heart for all people. So let's read chapter two. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without, doubting, without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So in the first half of this chapter, in verses 1 to 4 and verse 7, um, they talk about, uh, Paul is talking about the ministry of prayer for all people and the ministry of taking the word to all people. And those verses are glued together by verses five and six, which explain the atoning death of Jesus Christ and that it was for all people. So starting with verse one, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. What was of foremost importance to Paul was that prayer be made a priority when coming together for worship. He gives four types of prayer that Christians are to lift to God supplications, which are simply asking for something, making our needs known to God, prayers, which is an umbrella term for um, all kinds of prayer, communication to God, Uh, intercessions, which is making requests for other people and lifting up their needs, and giving of thanks. And this is a sense of gratitude for all that God has done. And this will be the only type of prayer that will carry over into eternity because we're not going to need the other kind of prayers any longer, but we will always and forever be giving thanks to God. Uh, This idea of intercessory prayer, praying for others, is the prayer that's least practiced. We can tend to be self-focused, only praying for ourselves and our immediate circle, um, but it's a ministry that's been given to the church by God. If we don't pray for the world, who will? The world doesn't pray for itself. Um, Intercessory prayer is catching the heart of God. Um, The more we get to know God ourselves, the more our heart is moved by his nature and it will cause us to have his concern for others. We will see the value of praying for the world and be sharing in God's passion for the world. When we intercede for others, it empties ourselves of self-concern and it immerses us in the lives of others. Paul tells Timothy that that all these types of prayers are to be lifted to God on behalf of all men. The word men in Greek is anthropos, and it actually means mankind, so it's talking about men and women. There isn't anyone who doesn't need prayer. It's easy to think of praying for those that we love, but when we take a minute to think of those that we don't want to pray for, that's exactly who we're supposed to be praying for. Um, We are actually told to give thanks for them, too. Public prayers in the church should have a global perspective. They should include the big issues of the day. They should include all the nations of the world. We should pray for renewal and revival and reformation in the church. We should be praying for missionaries and evangelists and church planters. We need to be lifting up the suffering of the church, the persecuted church around the world. And we need to pray for this desperation of unsaved humanity. Ian Bounds is a man who wrote many books on prayer And he said it's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men men about God. In other words, if we expect um, our efforts to evangelize the unsaved to go well, we need to make sure that we have covered it in prayer beforehand. And we're to pray for, verse 2 and 3, says, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior all of the leaders in Paul's time were pagans. Many were evil, like Nero. There were no Christian rulers, but they were to pray for them with thanksgiving, if you can imagine that. Why are we to pray for governments like this? Romans 13 tells us why. It says, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. It's all the more necessary for us to pray for godless leaders, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, it tells us in Ephesians 6.10. We can't battle these things on our own. We don't have the power. So we take it in prayer to God who does have the power. Government is actually God's gift to humanity, even though some abuse the power. We have to understand that God is using even evil governments to fulfill prophecy and to unfold his will. While leaders may be evil, there may be some just desires that they have, that they want to accomplish while they're in power, and we need to pray that those things get done. So we pray for our government and leaders to lead well, to write laws that will restrain evil and maintain stability stability and peace so that the gospel may go forward. We pray that the government will basically leave Christians alone uh, so that we can live our lives in a quiet and peaceful way. A quiet life refers to the outside, to the circumstances in the world around us, and a peaceable life refers to the inside, having a sense of tranquility. We want this so that getting the gospel out to the world won't be hindered. Christians who do not pray for their political leaders become cynical, showing that they are failing to pray for those in authority. How we speak about them shows if we pray for them or not. No one can feel hatred towards those for whom you are praying. We can disagree with them, but we're not to be harsh. So we pray this way so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, but the main reason we should pray this way is because it pleases God, it says in verse 3. This is what he wants, and why does he want this? Uh, verse 4 explains, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all to be saved, but not all will be saved. God's desire that all be saved is conditioned on another desire that he has, and that's that there will be a genuine response from human beings. God won't force us to follow him. He wants a kingdom full of willing sons and daughters. God won't program us to be saved like robots. He works upon human nature in other ways to draw people to himself. No one goes to hell except by their own fault. In Matthew 23:37, Jesus says, "How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing." In John 5:40, Jesus says, "But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life." God desires all to be saved in the sense that the gospel is to be preached to all without reservation, and then it's up to them to respond to the gospel. Salvation here is clearly associated with coming to the knowledge of the truth. In order to be saved, we have to have some understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done to save us, and that truth is explained in verses 5 and 6. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. At that time, the Romans and the Greeks believed in any number of gods. They even had a monument to the unknown gods so that they wouldn't overlook any god. Because that was the culture in Ephesus, Paul's emphasizing that there's only one god who can save. Christians were actually considered atheists at the time because they only believed in one god. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You either have to consider Jesus to be a liar or a lunatic or Lord for saying this. Jesus is how all will be saved. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus isn't the first of five different options um, to get to heaven. That would be offensive to God. What God did on the cross is the ultimate thing that could have been done. It's the greatest demonstration of his love and sacrifice. Jesus suffered physically, but he also drank the cup of suffering from God, God's judgment. Jesus is the mediator now between God and men, representing man and representing God. A mediator is one who intervenes between the two to make or restore friendship or to ratify a covenant. A mediator recognizes the position of both. Note that when Paul writes the man Christ Jesus, that this is in the present tense. Jesus didn't put on humanity like a jacket when he came to earth and then took it off when he returned to heaven. When God raised Jesus from the dead, his spirit rejoined his body, which was now a glorified body. Philippians 3.21 tells us that Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Jesus gave himself a ransom. You can give a lot of things without giving yourself. You can give your time, your finances, gifts, etc. but Jesus gave himself. A ransom is simply a payment, and he is the gift and the giver. When we think of the Old Testament sacrifices to cover sin, Jesus would be both the priest and the lamb. And Paul says about this glorious truth in verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's amazing that God chose Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles because he was the man who hated Gentiles more than anybody. Gentiles actually means uh, all nations outside of the Jewish nation of Israel. It was shocking that God who had made a covenant covenant only with Israel in the Old Testament was now wanting to bring the gospel to everyone in the world. So verses 1 through 7 Paul has talked generally about prayer and bringing forth the word, and now in verses 8 through 15, he's going to narrow it down to two specific instances. Paul speaks specifically to the men, and then he speaks specifically to the women. He speaks to the men in relationship to prayer, and then he speaks to the women in relation to the teaching ministry of the church. It might be that both the men and the women needed some correction in these areas. Um, Verse 8 says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Who should be leading the meetings of God's people when they gather together? The Greek word for men here is aner, A-N-E-R, and it specifically means male. Remember, this is only in the church setting, okay? Um, Prayer everywhere means in every church. Clearly, both men and women have been given the ministry of prayer and Uh, Women have excelled in this area. But Paul is saying to the men, don't you be passive here. You need to step up and take the lead. The men are to set the example. But how do we know that it's okay for women to be praying as well? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving the principles of public prayer to the church. And in verse 5 he says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. What Paul is saying is that the woman can pray and prophesy in the church. Um, and they're encouraged to do so as long as they are willing to be under church authority. Um, there are all kinds of postures of prayer. In this verse, he, he mentions raising holy hands. We, we tend to use folded hands and closed eyes, um, which is good, keeps us off our phones. There's also kneeling. People kneel. People prostrate themselves out on the floor. Uh, But their tradition was to lift their hands to God in prayer, and they were to be holy hands set apart to God. You can't pray effectively if you are holding on to a sin that you refuse to give up. That would be lifting up unholy hands. Um, And our prayers are to be without wrath, means there should be no anger in our hearts. And our prayers are to be without doubting, and that means without disputing. We need to be right with God and right with other people before coming to prayer so that our prayers won't be hindered. And when the women come to corporate prayer and worship, Paul has instructions for them too. He says in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Apparently, the men needed some correction in the area of prayer, and the women needed some correction in the area of dress. To adorn ourselves in modest apparel means to arrange, to put in order, or to make ready. And we get our word cosmetic from the Greek word for adorn. Um, In contrast to modest apparel, women in Ephesus would dress like the Roman goddesses when there would be a feast for the goddess that they worshipped in their temple named Diana or Artemis. They would dress in a sexually provocative way to attract husbands, and Paul was telling the women in the church that when they came to prayer and worship that they weren't to dress anything like that. We're to dress with propriety and moderation. Propriety asks the question, is it appropriate for the occasion? And moderation is a middle ground. It asks the question, is it too much or too little? All good questions to ask ourselves. In their day, women would have these big hairstyles with braids and all kinds of jewelry intertwined. Uh, They'd have pearls in there. And pearls were considered extremely expensive at that time. And braids apparently represented fortunes. So it was designed to draw attention to themselves. So we aren't checking the women in our church at the door for braids you can wear braids here, no problem. Um, but um, but the, the principles of propriety and moderation um, remain. They're just expressed differently from culture to culture. And Paul isn't saying that we can't wear jewelry. In Song of Solomon 1, 10 and 11, it says, speaking to a love interest, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with silver studs. And in Genesis 24, verses 10 to 30, we had the story of the servant who went to find a wife for Isaac, Rebecca, and he offered her a gold nose ring and two gold bracelets. How we dress says something about our heart attitude. The emphasis shouldn't be on the external, but on the internal. We don't want our appearance to be a distraction from Jesus, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works, it says in verse 10. So when gathering together for worship in the church, we want to be mindful of our dress, but we especially want to be adorned with good works, the most important adornment for women. Good works make a woman more beautiful than fancy joy and clothes ever could. Godliness is reverence to God. So if we have this godly reverence, um, we want to display it by our behavior and our dress and our good works. First Peter 3:4 says, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or of putting on fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Again, it's not that we can't wear nice clothes or we have to dress in rags. Proverbs 31:22 says, She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Purple was considered royal. But looking nice should never overshadow being adorned with good works. That's what needs to stand out. First Timothy 5.10 talks about one woman's good works. She brought up children, she lodged strangers, she washed the saints feet, she relieved the afflicted, she diligently followed every good work. And Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, tells of the good works of the famous Proverbs 31 woman. These are all good examples for us women. Verse 11 says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Okay, now there are a couple of verses that make us do a double take. Am I right? Uh, Let a woman learn. A woman should learn. In this ancient culture, education was designed exclusively for men. But Paul's saying, let the women learn. This was a radical idea for that time. Women are to be students of the Bible alongside men and we're to learn in silence. The Greek word for silence is the same word that was used up in verse two where it's interpreted peaceable. It means without contention, without vocal objection. The church service was um, much more informal at that time. People would stand up and speak out and dialogue during the service. The Jewish people would separate the men from the women. The men would be on the one side of the church, the women on the other side. And Paul may have been trying to prevent the women from shouting out questions or objections. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.35, women should ask their own husbands at home about these things. Does that mean then that as women were to shut up and never speak in church? Well, we mentioned earlier that in other places in the Bible, even in Paul's writings, women are mentioned as praying and speaking in the church under certain circumstances. Remember 1 Corinthians 11.5 says women can do this if they wear a head covering. The principle is under authority. The expression of the principle in the Corinthian culture uh, was to wear a head covering. For us today, wearing a head covering would not have the same meaning. Um, The principle, though, is to be throughout all generations of God's people. Um, Paul says that if a woman is under the authority of church leadership, then it is permissible for her to pray and to prophesy in the church setting with all submission. Ladies... Jesus is our example. He was no less God than God the Father, and yet he willingly submitted to the Father. If he can do it, we can do it. According to God, qualified and called men are to have the place of authority in the church. There are spiritual and character qualifications for men to be pastors and elders. They're not to abuse or misuse their authority. Coming under authority or submitting to authority does not make you an inferior person inferiority and superiority have nothing to do with God's order of authority in the home or in the church. It doesn't have anything to do with who are the smartest or the most gifted or the most spiritual. And it's not only women who are to be in submission. 99% of men are also in submission because they're not the pastors or the elders. Scripture does not tell us that all women are to be in submission to all men. Only in the home are women under the authority of their husbands and in the church under the authority of the pastor. But there's no biblical mandate for women to be in submission in politics or in education or in business or anywhere outside the church or the home. Margaret Thatcher is a great example of that. She was a a wonderful prime minister in the UK. If we believe in the infallible, inerrant word of God, we will trust the order of authority that God has put in place for us women in the home and in the church because we know that God has our best interest, interest in mind. And then he goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Teach and authority are not separate here. Um, They go together. Paul's saying that in the context of congregational life, women are not to have teaching authority in the church regarding doctrine and scriptural interpretation. Women aren't to be pastors or elders. But not all speaking or teaching is necessarily a violation of God's order of authority in the church. Whatever speaking or teaching is done by a woman should be in submission to the men that God has chosen to lead the congregation. So how does this principle apply, this principle of submission? May a woman teach a woman's Bible study? I hope so. (laughs) Most would say yes, because she's not usurping authority in any kind of doctrinal sense over the church in general. Older women are asked to teach the younger women in Titus 2, 3, and 4. And then there's the example of Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. Apollos, a man who was a great speaker and mighty in the scripture, it says, came to Ephesus. He accurately taught the word of God, but he had only been taught up to the time of John the Baptist. And he started teaching in a synagogue in Ephesus. And a Christian husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, heard him, and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, meaning they explained the gospel to him. The Greek order of grammar indicates that Priscilla did most of the talking to Apollos. This was a one-on-one teaching. Priscilla was not exercising teaching authority over a whole church. How about a woman teaching a Sunday school class of boys and girls? Up to what age? Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother, we're told in 2 Timothy 1, 5 and three fifteen. At what age would you draw the line? We can agree on the principle of submission, realizing that there may be differences of opinion on where that line is drawn. We can have some disagreement on how that principle works out. How about a one time evening service? Could a woman talk? How about a one time Sunday morning service? I'm going to give you one example. Um, One Sunday morning, Chuck Smith, the father of the Calvary Chapel movement, invited Corey Ten Boom to speak. Um, Now, Chuck stood by the principle of submission, no doubt about it, but he felt like this one-time exception was okay. It was Corrie ten Boom, after all. If you don't know who Corrie was, I would highly recommend reading the book or seeing the movie The Hiding Place. She was a Dutch woman who helped many Jewish people escape during World War II, was eventually caught, ended up in a prison camp with her sister. Her sister died, and then later she offered forgiveness to those who had had harmed her. Um, Quite a story. Another exception uh, to a woman speaking is called the pioneer missionary exception. And this is where out on the mission field, there may not be any men to lead a church service. So a woman might, um, until a man can. So you do what you can, always working towards the ideal. But generally, we would say no women in that position. Paul gives two reasons for maintaining God's order of authority in verses 13 and 14. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So number one, the order of creation. Adam was formed first. The first command in the Bible comes in Genesis 2, 16 and 7 where it says not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This command was not given to the woman at all. She hadn't even yet been created. This command uh, was given to Adam He received his command and authority from God, and then later Eve received her command and authority from Adam. So there's the first example of God's order of authority. And then the difference in sin between Adam and Eve. It's connected to their difference in authority. Both of them sinned in the garden, and Eve sinned first. Eve was completely deceived by the serpent, but Adam disobeyed God. But the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of mankind. It always blames Adam. Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Adam had authority that Eve did not have, therefore he also had a responsibility that Eve did not have. God never grants authority without responsibility and vice versa. Eve was not responsible for the fall of the human race. Adam was. Eve was tricked, but Adam sinned knowing exactly what he was doing. Eve's ability to be more easily deceived made her more dangerous in that place of authority. These reasons from Paul for maintaining God's order of authority have nothing to do with culture or where you live. The reasons are rooted all the way back in Genesis. Verse 15 says, Nevertheless, you will be saved or preserved or brought to peace and childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. No one is quite sure what Paul means here. Uh, It's not saying that only women that have children go to heaven. It's also not saying that no Christian woman is ever going to die in childbirth. That certainly has happened. The possible explanation might come from the original Greek phrasing, which says she will be saved in the childbirth, possibly referring to the birth of Jesus Messiah, the ultimate childbirth. Even though a woman was deceived and sinned, women will be saved by the Messiah whom a woman brought into the world. God has given to womankind a special blessing and dignity, the privilege of bringing Messiah into the world. And then faith, love, and holiness are the qualities that God looks for to be evident in women. And women have effectively nurtured these qualities in children throughout the generations. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, I'm sure you've heard. Women, moms, grandmoms, aunts, teachers, friends, are raising the next generation of pastors, teachers, and elders. And the values that women pass on to the next generations as we live them out become very real to them. So summing it up, I just have a couple final thoughts going back to the beginning of the chapter on prayer. As we mentioned before, prayer meetings tend to be the least attended meetings in the church, almost like we think it's an optional thing. But we've learned in this chapter that God expects us to be a praying church. Incessary prayer has faded in many churches, perhaps because the pastors have given up because the people don't attend. We are blessed that our pastor and our elders value prayer and they always invite us to participate. Maybe we don't intercede because we don't care, but I think it's more that we're unaware. And it's hard to care about something that you know nothing about. And that's why I left copies of um, the Voice of the Martyrs magazine on your tables. If you don't already get it, um, the true stories in here will cause you to care uh, for people around the world in different countries and to pray for them. Um, and if you want to, you can just call them up and they'll have it you know, sent to you on a regular basis if, if you like. Um, I also have a couple of book suggestions that will help open your heart to praying for the world. I have um, this Pray for the World and You Can Change the World. This is a children's book. I think they have an updated version with a different title, but both books come from the, um, the organization Operation World. And the books have information about countries, in the world, along with things to pray specifically for them. Um, and this book even has a calendar in the back uh, that lists all the countries, on, and you can pray for them on a specific date. And if you do that, you know you're praying with other people around the world for that exact country at the same time. So these, these help you, you know, they've helped me. I, I bought this one because I have a daughter who travels the world, and so I, I tend to look up the country and pray ahead of time. <laughs> um, and you're welcome to look at these afterward if you like. Um, and if you struggle with how to pray um, or you want to take your prayer life to a deeper level, I would recommend this little book called Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney. Um, if you get the book, let me know because I have notes that go along with it that would be helpful to you. It's a favorite of mine. It really changed the way I pray. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think if we understood that God really does respond and acts on our prayers, we would pray more and we would pray about more things. Um, We need to keep in mind what it says in James, you don't have because you don't ask. I want to leave you with one encouraging story about the effect of prayer. In 1989, the Berlin Wall had been separating free West Germany from communist East Germany for about 30 years. And two years um, earlier, in like 1987, a group of five people from the St. Nicholas Church on the communist side, the town of Leipzig, began praying for peace and freedom. They met every week for two years with their numbers growing. They had a prayer peace rally close to the end where 2,000 people were in the church praying and 10,000 were outside the church praying and everyone was holding candles. There was no violence from the praying people even though the communist government had tried to shut them down, blocking roads, hauling off the praying people and even giving the order to shoot. The hospitals were prepared for a bloodbath. For some reason, the troops came in and then withdrew. One communist official from Leipzig made an extraordinary unguarded admission to a journalist. He said, we were prepared for every eventuality, he said, but not for candles and not for prayers. Four weeks later, the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. Of course, government leaders, including our own President Ronald Reagan, were given the credit but we know that God used those leaders to bring down the wall based on the persistent prayers of those praying people in that church. You can do more than pray after you pray, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So let's pray.